Well, we're um, actually doing the first of, I think, three talks, Ron? Yes. Um, and um, we're doing this one as a conversation uh, because we didn't end up recording it properly in the, uh, in the, in the forum, um, but uh, we'll go through exactly the same material. Uh, so, Ron, over to you. First of three talks on um, the, the relationship of mind and matter and um, uh, which I, I suggested a theological topic as on the incarnation, uh, detour or destination. Um, I don't think we're going to develop that aspect of it very explicitly, but nonetheless, I guess what I had in mind is that our picture of what it is to be a human being uh, needs to be the richer it is, the more we can understand the incarnation and the more the incarnation shines a light on what it is to be a human being. But with that, it's over to you. Thanks, Tony. Um, I'm going through a series of slides which I prepared for the talk, so I'll try and remember to reference those slides as we go through. Um, and the first slide which should be available on the website if you want to follow along uh, with the slides while the talk is going on. I've called this talk, Is There a Ghost in the Machine? Uh, with a sub-note, sub, sub it's called The Hard Problem by a well-known Australian philosopher called David Chalmers. And I guess to me the main issue here is how much of an issue is it in the modern age that we regard ourselves possibly as nothing more than machines? Do we believe in a soul anymore? Is there such a thing as a mind? Or are we just materialist creatures that have evolved by random chance? Probably even more subtle a problem is even if, even if we're a Christian, do we believe that through evolution we are actually still material beings and that God has created us with brains that somehow mimic what traditionally was called a soul. Uh, but as science advances, is proving to be less and less definable in spiritual, psychological terms and more and more regarded as just a predictable, analyzable, repeatable uh, machine just like any other. And we see this of course in the recent drive towards AI and the increasing sophistication of computers. And I suppose the big issue there is that if we are, if we can build machines that mimic our minds, that gives more and more um, credence to the proposition that our minds are merely machines. There's a there's a real direct corollary there, I think, in in a modern twentieth century, twenty first century mind that as we build more sophisticated machines. Uh, we see ourselves as being just such a thing and nothing more. 
Um, if I could just uh, interject there or come in, because you've said something in that introduction that intrigues me. What you've said is um, there could be a extreme polarization. Um, on the one hand, we're just machines, the modern secular position. And what you said was that even as Christians, we probably don't believe that, but nonetheless, the pervasiveness of that thought system has minimized and eroded the concept of what a soul is, um, which was a far richer concept in ancient centuries than it is today. And, and we're at risk of, if not wholesale, accepting that position, at least being polluted by it and diluted in our understanding of the soul and the mystery of the soul. Mm. Well, I think that's... Yeah, that's, that's exactly what I'm trying to say. And it has huge ramifications, I think, in almost everything we do. I mean, mental health, for a start, is, a, is an enormous issue in Western societies. And apparently Australian statistics are amongst some of the worst in that regard. And um, it's got a huge bearing how we attack mental illness, whether we believe that the brain is a machine to be cured with a grease and oil change or whether we have to use other tools. I mean, pharmacological solutions are very prevalent in treating mental, mental illness. And, um, I mean, it's very relevant to all sorts of other issues. It's, it's, it's relevant to um, uh, relationships in a huge way um, because if we're merely machines then we're just products of our chemical makeup and therefore we can't expect to change behavior we can't expect to um, overcome situations we can't expect to uh, exhibit things like love or compassion or um, moral integrity except according to the external stimuli that our physical makeup uh, can support. It has implications for the criminal system, criminal justice system. It's endless really. And of course I think it has hugely profound implications for how we read and absorb and enjoy the scriptures as well. Mm. Because of course the claims of the scripture all the scripture is predicated, it seems to me, very much fundamentally based on the fact that there is something mysterious, divine and wonderful about a human soul. And it's not a mechanic. It's not a machine, it's not something that um, can be treated in the same way as we, we build a bridge or uh, create an, an aeroplane or produce a chemical equation. And all the language of the scriptures is um, about something other than the material world, I think. So um, it all boils down to the, this question of what is consciousness 
that seems to be something that sets us completely apart from everything else we see around us. If you if you look around at the physical world, um, there's one glaring exception to the whole thing, and that is a human being. Human beings seem to possess a consciousness that nothing else does. I mean, it's interesting to speculate about whether animals have a consciousness or not. Perhaps they do have a primitive consciousness, but not in the same way that a human being does. Not in a self-aware, um, really divine way that a human being soul seems to mimic God and his characteristics. I think that's a very important part of what consciousness is. We're really mimicking, as it says, you know, we're creating the image of God. We're mimicking um, all the attributes of God as human beings. So you can't really uh, fit. What I want to show in this talk is you can't fit that into a materialist worldview. However, launching onto the second slide, that's exactly what the spirit of the age is trying to do these days. And on the second slide, there's a newspaper article, which I cut out regularly from newspapers as I see them. This one was back in 2005, September 2005. The London Times happened to be on a flight between London and somewhere. And uh, I noticed this article, I immediately cut it out. When you think this is 13 years ago, it's been, it just sh shows you how persistent, deep, and determined this message is in the Western world and how even as Christians it just absorbs us and um, uh, dominates us and it, it becomes very hard to kick against it and push against it. This article is called Mirror Mirror on the Wall. Is there anyone there at all? I'd just like to read a section from it on slide three. It's blown up and made easy to read. So mirror, mirror on the wall, is there anyone there at all? Our sense of who we are and our feelings are a product of biological processes in the brain. The London Times, 20 September 2005. Look at your own reflection. What do you see other than machinery? Your face is an animated device attached to the outer surface of a bony box. Concealed bands of fibre tug the surface tissue this way and that. You may imagine that the thinking, feeling you is somewhere inside the bony box. But if you looked inside, you'd just find more machinery. The gelatinous substance of the brain is a dense matrix of billions of robotic cells. Inside the cells are other intricate machines. There's no one in there. So how does the conscious you clamber from the darkness of the box out into the bright arena of subjective experiences? No one has yet fathomed how the material substance of the brain can conceivably give rise to conscious awareness. This is known as the hard problem. Neuroscientists remain upbeat about a solution. But some philosophers have given up the ghost. Transmutation of meat to mind is alchemy beyond the scope of human intellect. Between when it but when it comes to the neural circuitry of the self, we arrive at a conflict between our natural intuitions of selfhood, that mysterious essence occupying the space behind the face, 
and the facts of brain science, the vacant machinery. We recall from images of ourselves as soulless machines, yet we often equate the self with the machinery of the body. We all own a body and claim sovereignty over it, but when we speak of the self, we usually have something else in mind. A bundle of thoughts, feelings and emotions overseen by an ethereal observing eye. The brain is revealed to be precisely what we are and precisely what we are not. The grey materialist picture I painted of the brain as vacant machinery merely provides the backdrop to the real stuff of the self, which is storytelling and imagination. We are not that soggy mass of robotic cells, although we depend on them. We are rather the tales they tell. I think that's a very well written Mm. article. And I think it captures the essence of the problem we're facing as through our own ingenuity we're able to look more and more deeply into the physical workings of nature and ourselves Um, I think we convince ourselves that this will be an endless um an endlessly fruitful venture that will yield clear explanations in a physical materialist sense of how the mind actually works and that through it we'll be able to not only conquer the world but conquer ourselves. I assume make a utopian society, uh, cure all mental illness, live perfect relationships. But... um, I think a point I really need to make very clearly is there is no way known scientifically of getting from the grey matter of the brain to the thinking, feeling consciousness that we know as ourselves. There's no science there. There just is simply no science there at all. To say, to claim that there is, is um, an absolute nonsense. I mean, neuroscience is a very, very fledgling field. And it's a very behavioristic type of science, from what I can tell. It matches certain heightened electrical activity in the brain with various behavioral responses, and somehow claims that that explains what thought is. Well, I want to go on and try and explore what thought is and see whether the um, materialist project has any hope of, uh, of explaining it. And then this journalist is essentially agreeing with you. He's actually saying that we are not the vacant machinery of the body. Um, try as we might, we'll never find the self there. It, it's part of it, but it's, all, it's not, the, not the heart of it. Yes, that seems to be the, the tone of the article. Which is good because it's honest at least. I think there's a lot of dishonesty in a lot of the um, in a lot of the press and the scientific community about that this problem. Um, I mean it's it's a spirit of the age thing really. The spirit of the age is to press on relentlessly to find a materialist solution to everything. And the the biggest the biggest um, black hole is the human mind 
but that doesn't stop a lot of the scientific community making huge claims about it uh, or claims that and assumptions that it will one day be mastered. Um, now this is nothing new, this project. This materialist project has been going on for probably 2,500 years, at least since the Greeks got on the job. Um, it's interesting that Paul differentiates the world into two classes, uh, the Jews and the Greeks. Uh, in, I think in Corinthians, he, he's a pains to basically make two interesting categories, the Jews and the Greeks. And I think that's uh, a very important thing to try and keep in mind. I think um, as believers, we have to maintain a Jewish perspective on what a human being is. Um, the world has gone the way of the Greeks, of course. And the Greeks seek explanation, assume that there is an explanation available to human beings for every phenomenon that we encounter. Um, some of the earliest attempts were made by the Pythagoreans back in the 5th century BC. They thought that everything was made up of little bits of geometry. This is in slide 5. I won't, I won't uh, linger long on that, but it's just, a, I think it's quite a nice example of, that even 2,500 years ago, somebody out there was trying to reduce every possible phenomenon down to a few simple building blocks. Democritus was probably next in line amongst the Greeks. He came up with the idea of atoms. What an atom is, is probably now much more mysterious than it seemed to be to Democritus. Because unfortunately for us, atoms have devolved into quarks, electrons, protons, neutrons. For, for Democritus, they probably just were little individual, indivisible blocks with slightly different shapes and sizes that he postulated the whole of creation could be described by. Slide seven. Aristotle had a different approach. He thought everything was made up of five elements, earth, air, wind, and fire, were those that the earth was made up of, and then the heavens were made up of the fifth element, the celestial element, which was perfect. Again, an attempt to reduce the world into a manageable form. Now, I'm not saying that that in itself is a bad thing. Of course, science progresses under that assumption and we must pursue it. Uh, but it's a question of overreach, I think. Mm. Um, all these forms uh, that we discuss as being fundamental building blocks of matter are merely constructs of the human mind. When I get on to talk three, I wanted to I want to discuss matter in particular and what our current view of matter is. And of course, matter has become an extremely mysterious substance that probably seems a lot more ethereal than when the Greeks were talking about it 2,500 years ago. Um, quantum theory, relativity makes matter, space and time completely mysterious again. Uh, 
scientists will say, well, you just, you're going to claim the god of the gaps here, which is that if, if something seems too complicated, we just say, well, that's god in there. We can't, science can't venture in there. But I think uh, the correct position on that is that we have to accept there are limitations. We should pursue science as far as we can, no doubt about that. But I think the world is showing us that there are a lot of limits to what we can discover about ourselves and the world. Um, slide 8 was a show highlights Epicurus, who was another milestone along this journey to atomism. Um, they believed that there was nothing but matter and the void. In other words, space and atoms. I mean, an incredibly sophisticated view, really, when you consider it in 3rd century BC. No different at all to a 21st century impression. And it's all driven. I think this is a big question. Where is this... Where's this driving from? A Jewish mind does not, is not interested in such things. It doesn't drive in that direction. It's the Greek mind. It's a mind that looks to create a universe that's self-sustainable. It doesn't require any external input, I think. I mean, that's, that's the battle here. I don't know what you think about that, Tony, but... I think ultimately the battle for the human soul is the battle for allowing God into the world or not. Because if we can make a human being material, then we've eliminated any need for external um, design or input whatsoever. Well, I think you've also on this slide got another really important point that connects with what we're saying is that you end up making matter into a kind of a god, which they do by saying that the universe is eternal mm. um, and then digging into that more, what is eternal about the universe? Um, it can't be the larger shapes and forms like a tree because we know that a tree dies as we die um, and he has assumed what doesn't die must be the small indivisible units of matter they must be eternal which probably he's uh, in as you say in the third century th this slide is given the most elegant succinct summary of the materialist mindset it's 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 logical uh, it's logical consequences are clear Hmm. Now the universe is eternal. Um, and so there is a, a sort of a conspiracy between elevation of matter and the concept of an eternal universe. But you're right. I mean, now there, you, you, there is no... We've tried to remove all mystery, but funnily enough, we've put mystery back in because how can you have an eternal universe? But That's all right. Yeah, that's another interesting matter of speculation but um, I think it also comes very much to the question of meaning and purpose a materialist universe almost by definition a self-consistent eternal materialist universe 
can, by definition, have no purpose or meaning to it. Uh, no, there's no such thing as responsibility or um, striving after anything except for whatever subjective willpower we attach to those sort of pursuits. There's nothing beyond ourselves that we can call upon to give us direction or purpose. Machines have no morality. No. Um, a yeah. car has no morality, as far as I know. A brake system doesn't have compassion, forgiveness, and responsibility, as far as I know. Yeah. And, um, of course, in it's quite interesting to me, as I've been looking at these slides, there is no mention in any of them of ethics or values or relationship. Those words are not in there. Um, they're strangely vacant. Yeah, that's, um, a very good, that's a really good point. Um, and I think that's very much tied to the issue, how do you get from matter to mind? Hmm. There, does, it, it's, there doesn't seem to be any conceivable linkage. It's like that article in the London Times. How do you get from grey matter to the thinking, feeling person I am? It doesn't seem to, it doesn't seem to be the right tools. Yeah. Um, I just made a huge job too of uh, nearly 2,000 years to Copernicus in slide nine, um, mainly because the Greeks probably reached a high point uh, and the Romans and then the midi Middle Ages really just um, tre trod water for a long time. Uh, it wasn't until Copernicus postulated that the earth revolved around the sun rather than the other way around that the modern age began. And when you think about it, you can understand why. Up until that point, it had been assumed, although some Greeks had postulated the earth revolved around the sun, it had been assumed that the earth was the centre of the universe and therefore God's place of most interest, maximum interest, which seemed to conform to what the scriptures were saying. Once you put the earth revolving around the sun, all, all the centrality of the earth quickly fades away, or it can be argued that it quickly fades away. And that's why it's called the Copernican Revolution, not just because of the astronomical consequences, but because of the philosophical, religious... It's, it's actually quite interesting that it was such a revolution, which it seems to me to be trivial... Um, to, to claim that the Earth is the most special place in the universe has not, nothing to do with who revolves around what. Its, it's, it's conditions for life are so utterly, utterly unique, um, not even by degree. They just seem to be in different quality. And to equate the centrality of the universe with its particular position in spherical motion as to whether it's the centre or, or, or one of the revolving spheres... Uh, seems to be uh, um, a complete non sequitur. So it's not, not uh, mm. connecting like like questions. I think in some ways we've come full circle in that regard um, after 400 years of thinking about it because as our knowledge of the universe has grown and we've realised that not only is the Earth revolving the Sun but the Sun is just one of a huge number of yeah. stars in the galaxy and the galaxy is only one of billions of galaxies um, we're starting to realise that most of it out there is not like the Earth. The Earth is truly 
seems very, very unique. And there's, of course, there's lots of talk now about the Goldilocks factor of the Earth, that basically the Earth had to be put in a position which was not too cold and not too hot, but just right. So the Goldilocks factor is this incredible raises edge we're walking along of the Earth having to have quite a few properties physically to enable life to occur. Yes. And that's called the Goldilocks. I like the yes. Goldilocks factor. <laughs> and one of which is we have to be a certain distance from the sun, from a sun, and that the sun has to be a certain distance from the galactic centre. And it has to be a very stable galaxy that's not crashing into another galaxy, and so it goes on. But uh, I, th I think your point is a very good one, that um, the... Uh, the motion of the Earth is hardly, the motion and position of the Earth is hardly uh, what's at stake in the scriptures. Yes, the motion and position of the Earth is not, has nothing to do with its uniqueness. No. Yes, yeah. Um, well, uh, just, just sort of with that one to harp upon it, in a funny way, we've discovered the Earth really is the centre of everything. Not so much uh, in the simplistic concept the pre-Copernicans thought it had to be in the centre of revolving spheres, but the centre of everything, as in the sweet spot, the Goldilocks spot, where everything conspires, be they gravitational forces or distances from the sun, or everything conspires in this incredible uh, pinpoint of love and intention, we would say, <laughs> to allow life and meaning, let alone consciousness, to exist. Yes. And in fact... As I've said in a previous talk of mine, if you start looking at relativity theory, general relativity, and cosmological theories, then relatively basically says there's no central point in the universe. Every point is equivalent. And in fact, every point is the centre of its own universe because the universe is expanding in all directions and... We happen to be at the, the Earth has to happens to be at the very central point of our perspective, um, so that the edges of our universe are exactly, um, according to modern theory, thirteen and a half billion light years from the point of the Earth in all directions. But I won't harp on that one. That might be something I'll address in the third talk. Um, another crucial step after Copernicus, I think, probably the most crucial step happened shortly afterwards, Galileo Galilei, everyone remembers, he, um, he took a telescope, turned it on the planets and saw that actually Jupiter and had moons and the moon had craters and they all looked very much like terrestrial bodies. Uh, in other words, they didn't look that much different to the Earth. They looked like solid lumps, not celestial spheres that revolved in perfect harmony. But I think the most important thing he did we all know he dropped balls, different sized balls or something, from the top of the Tower of Pisa, and to everybody's astonishment, they fell at the same rate, whereas everyone had assumed that a heavy ball would fall much more quickly than a light ball. And from that, Galileo decided to measure the exact mathematical relationship of a falling body and from that point on, science became mathematised. And the, the age of mathematics 
was born in the age of equating everything to do with the physical world with a mathematical explanation. And once it became mathematical, it became predictable. And once it became predictable, it became mechanical, a mechanism that we could understand and control, that we could fashion into our own purposes. Uh, this, I think this was a critical turning point in the thought history of the world. Galileo's mathemat mathematical insight into nature. Well, you've gone further. What you've said is he matha, there's a verb, matha, mathematizes <laughs> reality. Um, and thus, it, to my mind, uh, begins to shrink reality to that which can be modelled by numbers. And um, in, in another article I read on a completely different topic, there's nothing wrong with this except mathematics becomes um, a proxy for reality and a passport to, to certainty. And that's where the falsehood comes in. I think that's a great point. Um, and well put. I, mean, I think that what we fail to realise is that everything, that every human intellectual construct is not reality itself. It's a proxy. Um, it's a uh, it's a mental construct that assists us in comprehending, manipulating, dealing with reality. Uh, in certain things, it's very successful in building aeroplanes or um, cathedrals. In other things, I wonder if it is so useful, especially where it's applied to human, I'm sure you would argue this very strongly in Second Road, it's overused in human systems. That would be your analysis, I would assume, in that situation. Uh, completely, that it actually, um, uh, the, the um, elevation of mathematics it just is based to me on a very naive epistemology. Um, and the fact, of course, is that mathematics is just one filter at looking at the world. And I think the second factor, which um, uh, another great philosopher, Vico, made um, in his opposition to Descartes, who was very much on the materialist side, is that mathematics is also a human creation. We, we make maths. Um, and so it isn't just that it's a subset it's a, uh, or just one window on reality. It's also, because we made it, we can't claim any ultimates at all. It's yeah. pragmatic mm. um, and um, useful, but it's by no means any... It, by no means is it a sort of a window onto eternal truths. Yes. Uh, but sorry, just another point. Tucked in behind that... Um, assumption that mathematics is a window on an eternal truth. I think there is a false view of God as changeless. Um, right. And um, which was very much as we heard from Edwin Judge in the Greek conception of the universe, which had to be completely changeless. Mm. Um, therefore, if God is changeless, therefore truth must be changeless. And therefore, mathematics is the search for universal principles, equations, 
and the, that universality now presents itself as um, the ultimate reality and then the new God. Um, mm. However, um, that is all built on the assumption that uh, changelessness is perfection, which is a very Greek concept. And, and of course, the Jewish, gospel, the Jewish belief of God and our belief of God is, uh, ain't true. Yes. Which you uh, elucidated in some of your talks. Unfortunately, or fortunately, uh, mathematics has had a lot of success. I mean, it's certainly delivered for us in the 21st century and since its discovery. Tremendous progress in standard of living and um, physical control of our environment. Uh, probably no one doing more than so than Isaac Newton to establish that. I mean, Newton, Newton's success was so broad and so widely lauded that uh, he was given almost um, angelic recognition in his time. And you can understand why. In slide 11, I show that Newton basically, through through a mathematical treatment of several different phenomena, such as the flight of a cannonball and the orbit of the planets showed that, they're the, that, that the same in mathematics applies to both and therefore they're the same phenomenon. He invented the differential calculus on the way to demonstrating that, so he's a pretty smart cookie. Um, calculus itself is a very interesting mathematical construction because it's predicated on the fact that systems evolve regularly over time and so it can be predicted and I think this is this is possibly where it gets a little bit um, difficult to differentiate because clearly God has made a very regular systematized creation where cause and effect operate where um, prediction is possible, where analysis is possible. I think it becomes more a matter of uh, degree and where do we stop using only one sort of analysis to try and describe and manipulate the whole of creation. Uh, it's a very subtle tool when trying to uh, build a machine. It's a very gross tool when you're trying to use mathematical analysis to cure human, social and psychological issues, I think. Or business solutions, mm -hmm. as you would, I'm sure, say. Um, slide 12 is a very nice slide, uh, which I often bring out, and I have done in several previous talks, because I think it just shows how quickly the consequences of this mathematical, scientific, materialist worldview was understood. It hasn't taken us to the 21st century to understand these things. John Donne, in the 1500s, or early 1600s, I don't know when he wrote this poem, had really understood just like a 21st century person exactly the consequences. I'll just read the poem and highlight a few issues. Uh, 
the new and new philosophy calls all in doubt. Presumably, what's being called in doubt is the mystery and splendor of God's creation. The element of fire is quite put out. He dismisses the Aristotelian worldview, which was prominent for hundred for a thousand years in Europe. The sun is lost and the earth and no man's wit can well direct him where to look for it. An allusion to Copernicus, no doubt. But this second verse, I think, is very interesting. And freely men confess that this world spent when in the planets and the firmament they seek so many new then see that this is crumbled out again to his atomies. And I think that line is very telling. Is crumbled out again to his atomies. Dunn saw this whole project is leading in one direction. Crumbling this whole mysterious beautiful creation down into a bunch of atoms. The whole thing's it's a great verb that crumbled. It is. It, it's um, it's reductionism. Yes. Um, uh, but it, the word crumble, which is a trivial word one uses for breadcrumbs, and mm. is is not is also carrying with it a fairly pejorative sense of uh, uh, trivialising. Yeah, and it would have been especially true for John Donne, I suppose, whose whole life's work was built on the wonder and mystery of human experience mm. as a poet. And this new world order is trying to crumble all that down into mm. a bunch of atoms. And then his last two lines builds on that horrible crumbling where he says, "'Tis all in pieces, all coherence gone, all just supply and all relation." I think that all coherence gone is a really interesting thought. Um, because when we come to look hopefully in the next talk we'll, we'll touch on it briefly in this one if we get there in the next talk I want to look in more detail at what the mind actually is really today I'm, I'm trying to say what the mind is not and that is it's not a machine next time I want to look at what the mind actually is and really the, according to someone like Kant the mind is a coherence making machine or sorry I shouldn't use the word machine um, a coherence-making instrument of some sort. It makes coherence out of the world and experience. Whereas if you have a purely atomistic materialist view, it's very hard to make coherence out of anything. The grey matter of the brain does not seem to be able to make coherence out of anything. Um, well, in a way, I mean, Dunn is so astute here because he is actually um, disagreeing with, I think it was Epicurus, who talked about matter being eternal. Mm. And in a funny way, well, not in a funny way, I think Epicurus's sense of the reductionist project was it will yield, it will get us through to eternal, eternal beauty or eternal reality, whereas Dunn sees that reductionism goes in utterly the opposite direction. It destroys any unity, thus any meaning, thus any coherence. Um, the contrast couldn't be starker in the analysis of the effects of the reductionist project. Mm. It, it actually, 
I'm just thinking now, it really echoes, I think, those first few verses in Genesis, you know, we, the earth was without form and void, mm. without coherence, all in pieces. Oh, that's good. That's a nice, nice way of putting the word coherence into Genesis 1. Yeah. Um, I think that's completely valid. That in turn reminds me of John Walton's entire emphasis. The, the big word he saw governing Genesis 1 was order. We could say order is just just another word for coherence. Yes, as you're right. Yeah. That, that that there was in 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 essence um, uh, prior to the shaping work of the mind of God, we did have um, crumbling mm. pieces that were going nowhere, achieving nothing, and had no meaning. And God's entire project is always order or coherence. Of course, the whole time we're talking about coherence and order, my mind is continually going to Ephesians 1 verse 10, the epic climax of the project of God, according to Paul, that in um, the fullness of the times, God, he, the Father, will unite all things in Christ, um, gather up, cohere all things uh, in, in Christ, which, which was... Uh, essentially saying the universe began with a creative coherence and ends with a spiritual coherence and this coherence was always God's project. Little wonder then to see reductionism as an evil spirit. It's actually trying to attack coherence yes. and, and one can then see a dark uh, dark force behind that, an anti-God force. Yes, yeah. Not just a mere casual philosophic position. Yeah. Yes, it's almost like there's this never-ending project of coherence which God has uh, initiated right back in Genesis when he started to cohere from the void, light and dark, land and sea, day and night. But as you're alluding to, it continues on through the ages to come when all things, much more sophisticated systems even than that, principalities and powers... Uh, the whole of human creation gets cohered more and more into one new creation uh, and which is the antithesis to the crumbling into pieces mm. of materialist reductionism. Mm. Um, other examples uh, other examples of philosophers of that time uh, and I'm aware that this is probably going to be a lot longer than the previous talk. Well, why don't we? Um, why don't we find a natural pausing place, and we can do we can do it in two parts. Two parts. Okay. Um, so Thomas Hobbes, a Scottish philosopher, contemporary of Galileo also understood immediately the profound effect of the Galilean dynamics. And, of course, he, had, he went straight to the, the real business end of the whole debate. Because atomism... Of course, we have the periodic table today, which gives form and function to the elements of nature. So there is... Atomism, atomism isn't all bad in the sense that 
it gives us some sort of mental model with which to understand and manipulate the elements and build them into complex structures which gives us all the complex uh, creations of modern technology and science but the the big underlying um, black hole is does it apply to the mind as well it's, it's really which comes first the chicken or the egg it, it fails to recognize that the periodic table is a creation of a wonderfully cohering mechanism or instrument the mind the mind to come up with the concept of the periodic table must have come from somewhere other than the periodic table itself the mm. the basic elements there's something other and i use that term in a mysterious sense there's something other non-material about something that can come up with a periodic table and and even if one went further uh the periodic table is an attempt, I suppose, to unitize reality. That's reality. Whereas, as we sit here, I look at a candle in front of us. I presume that candle is composed essentially of the periodic table. I presume so. However, in looking at that candle, I never think of it as the. It's not. I'm not looking at the periodic table. No. I'm looking at something entirely different that has shape, texture, light, wholeness. Um, and the periodic table is is at best a set of um, elements and tools um, to form a candle. And it isn't as if also it, I'm looking at the candle. The very concept of a candle is probably as much in my mind as it is in that thing there. Yes. Um, and and so the periodic table is some materials that that are part of reality, but they are not reality. And we very rarely, um, well, we never see the periodic table on its own. I don't, I've never personally seen a single element. <laughs> no, well, we can't. And in fact, I think when we, when we get to the last talk on what matter is, and even what mind is, uh, I think quantum theory will show very clearly that the input of the mind is operating even as we observe the physical, observe and manipulate the physical world. But I think the periodic table is can be put in the same category as mathematics. It's a construction mm. of a very sophisticated operating system, and just like just like God in Genesis brought forth the natural world. We're doing the same thing when we create a candle. We're, we're looking at fundamental um, fundamental tool, building blocks and tools and then fashioning them into the things in our own image and out of our own minds. Anyway, Hob Thomas Hobbes decided that mind was nothing but the motions of certain parts of an organic body. In other words, it was just chemicals. This is in the early 1600s, I might add, which is a ridiculous thought, really. We think we're so sophisticated and 
you know, you hear, you hear neuroscientists talking as if they've discovered something completely new. And uh, One of the points of your talk is that, I mean, we've now gone through roughly 2,000 years of history. They're saying exactly the same thing, that Hobbes is no more sophisticated than Epicurus was. No, it's not. Um, and um, which tends to show me there's been no empirical science to lead you to Hobbes from Epicurus. It's just people speculating. With natural reasoning, and uh, of course, as you'll show in other talks, these people had equally brilliant, or probably more brilliant, opponents who could argue for the narrowness of these points of view. Yes. Um, the circularity of reasoning behind his statement is quite astonishing. The mind is nothing but the motions of certain parts of an organic body. Um, if I can show that there is such a thing as a reductionist world with motions and cause and effect. Therefore, reflexively, that's what my mind is, um, is a ridiculous um, sort of narrowing uh, of the mind. It reminds me of, um, I came across this speaking of artificial intelligence when I, I mean, the one of the people who is a candidate for the father of artificial intelligence is uh, Herb Simon from Carnegie Mellon University. He and Arthur Newell were the first people to um, invent um, a human reasoning process on computer. Um, but despite the man's brilliance, and he got the Nobel Prize, not for that, but for economics, um, uh, in lectures that I went to and listened to him, and I had conversations with him as well because I was on staff with him there, the incredible... Um, naivety of his philosophical connections were just breathtaking to me you know and and you know as, as an example one of it one is that people will like him will represent a human decision making process by a series of discrete steps um as in a process map and a flowchart, and that is a way of representing a human reasoning process and then the reflexive reasoning is well therefore that's how i think um, whereas in fact that uh, flowchart is is uh, not how I think. It's a representation of how I think. It's not a very good one. I mean, it's a terrible reduction of how I mm. think. It's better than nothing, but it it ain't brilliant either. Mm. Um, and because one could mirror to some extent my mind by this apparently inorganic process, therefore my mind is inorganic. Mm. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's a very interesting. Um, yeah, because I, because my I can mirror my mind in this sort of inorganic process. My mind is inorganic. Is a a rush to judgment that I think the whole scientific community makes these days in everything it sees and every endeavour it takes. It all, and particularly I guess too in the modern. The last 20 years with, with the new electronic revolution where smartphones and computers are really at the cutting edge of technology, it's really highlighted more than ever before how we can build contraptions that seem to mirror in some way the human mind. Um, how much longer do you think we should go on? I think probably this might be a good place to to pause because, I mean, I think with Hobbes you've got as you say, he's gone to the dark end, um, which is 
um, really sort of summarising it, it's reductionism, materialism has now been applied to the mind. Yeah, yeah. Okay. That's so, right. Yeah, okay, cool.